at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, January 8th, 2023 edition. We have begun the second trading week of the year. And to celebrate, we have Luke Guerrero back with us. Are you excited for this week, Luke? I am. This is actually the first Monday show of 2024. Ah, oh, that's true. Yeah, that's Monday was New Year's Day. And time to celebrate. Time to celebrate the first Monday show of the year. And even though it's a Monday, just because we might be a little slower, it's the same task. It's the same task, which is trying to help our listeners become better investors. And we do that by answering your finance and investment questions, giving you data and most importantly, perspective so that you can avoid the pitfalls of investing and capitalize on the opportunities that are always there. There are always opportunities in the marketplace to make good investments. Now, we're going to run down the show topics of the day as well as what happened in the market today, but we're going to answer our first caller question now. Hey, Steve or Justin, this is Bobby from Atlanta, Georgia. What do you guys think of uh, XPO Logistics? Is it a good time to buy or still probably a little bit more downside? We'll listen to the answer on the next show. Thank you. All right, Luke, XPO Logistics. This is one of the largest logistics companies out there, nearly a $10 billion market cap. And it is a freight brokerage company. And it is mainly a pure play asset based less than truckload carrier, uh, which basically helps uh, companies find their shipping, fulfill their shipping needs. Okay. And like I said, it's one of the largest out there. It's been on a rally as of late. But the question is it too overpriced now that it's rallied from, let's see, late 2022 was around $25 per share. And now we're at 83. The market got ahead of itself. Well, first and foremost, I, I do like the company. Uh, I, you know, profitability has been pretty stable. Cash flow has been pretty stable over the years. Uh, but like you said, there has been a pretty significant run up. And what has that done for the company and its stock price? It's left its price to book at eight relative to its average of 2.7 over the past five years. Uh, from every valuation metric I'm looking at, it just seems a little bit overpriced for me. So if I was looking to get into this name, I don't think I would right now. Yeah, and while, while the business, the cash flows have been relatively steady uh, lately, if you look back in history, go back all the way to, you know, the financial crisis and, and beyond, you know, their business has been fairly up and down. Earnings in, 19, in 2016 were, were 99 cents, uh, made a four oh nine pre-pandemic, uh, and then a dollar one, dollar ninety in 2021, 
and then 352 in 2022. So it's make nearly $3 a share uh, once they announced their fourth quarter earnings for last year. But both of the estimates for 2023 and this year, 2024, continue to be downgraded. So that's uh, a bit of a worry in my mind. And like I said, I don't love, as Luke said, I don't, we don't love that valuation. And the technicals, they've been plateauing here and the momentum is starting to wane. So uh, I like... That's this company is on your watch list. It is one of the better logistics companies out there to buy. But I think after this run and the recent momentum slowdown in both the broader economy as well as this name, uh, I would be on the sidelines at the current time. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover over the next 40 minutes. And our focus point, our main focus point, is set up by this headline. And it is, what are the key themes that could rule how the markets perform in 2024? This is a report from Goldman Sachs, and they have some predictions. And we're going to go over those. There's multiple bullet points here. And some, I would say I agree with. Some I disagree with. And I think Luke probably has uh, some similar agreements and disagreements as well. So we're going to go over what that means for U.S. equities and the 2024 economic market outlook. And we also have other topics on the docket as well. One is in regards to the supply chain. Supply chain was a big buzzword during the pandemic and certainly was part of the driver for inflation, but only part of it. But that also means it can be a driver for disinflation, and it has been as of late, and there's a new data point for December, so we're going to look at that. What else? We're also going to touch on the earnings season coming up here in a little bit, and then lastly, Blackstone is launching a private equity fund uh, for the average investor, so we're going to look at that as well. We also have some voice bank questions. One is in regards to becoming a financial advisor as well as Amazon. We also have a perspective, which is on history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. But we're going to head to our first break now. So give us a call at 888-99-CHART. Every investor is working to build a secure financial future. Would this be an opportune time to get into annuities? Everyone's situation is different. Get your thoughts on CRM, Salesforce. And so are their questions. And I was just calling for your assessment of Blackstone Incorporated. To get your take on Chewy. Ticker symbol L-E-C-O. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan. Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein. You know, I'm okay paying a fair price for a very good business. Steve Peasley. It's a very well-run company. And now Luke Guerrero. EBITDA growth is significantly higher than its competitors. Are ready to provide their unbiased answers. Each podcast is unique and you set the agenda. I will. Hey, hi, Steve. 24-7, rain or shine, InvestTalk is made better by the power of you. Call 888-99-CHART. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are ready to answer your finance and investment questions. Call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. 
Now let's talk a little bit about the market performance for the day. Today, Luke, was the strongest up day of 2024. That's that's for sure. The Russell 3000, the 3000 largest stocks out there in the marketplace today, up nearly 1.5% in total. So certainly a bounce back after a a down week uh, opening 2024. What did you see uh, as the market went uh, through the day? Well, I saw small caps leading the way, the Russell 2000 up nearly 2%. Overall, I just think, you know, a lot of this had to do with, I actually saw there was a potential deal uh, to avert more crises in the shipping lanes with the Houthis. There's potentially a deal on the books to avert a government shutdown within the next couple weeks. So pretty good news for bulls all around. But overall, I think this was just a, a... a shift back, a, a rally after that market correction coming out of the new year, uh, awaiting this uh, the latest CPI figures coming later this week. Yeah, that'll be the big market mover. And then we get into earnings season. You had the 10-year, that was down four basis points on the day. You had the dollar, that was down a little bit. So that certainly helps uh, helps things along uh, you the, the biggest news from individual company basis was probably Boeing uh, was it that uh, it was a door that flew off one of their planes uh, and so and that was a 737 max the, the plane that they've had a lot of issues with so that was uh, probably the biggest negative medical properties trust another one of those REITs that we got a lot of calls on people chasing yield that went down big again uh, today down four and a half percent but yeah a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of positive uh, movers after that sell-off last week. And next week is option next week. And I think that's when you can get some volatility after that. But it'll be very interesting to see how we close the the month going through all those earnings announcements coming up, as well as a Fed announcement coming up at the end of the end of the uh, end of the month. All right. Now let's uh touch a bit on actually let's go to a voice bank question right now at eight 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 ninety nine chart. I'm currently I'm playing basketball overseas in Europe, but I know that once I'm playing basketball, one of my passions is uh, investing, and I'm learning from you guys and other people now, but also I have a bachelor's degree in finance, and I was wondering if you'd give me some advice on what would be the next steps uh, for me to take in becoming a personal financial advisor, because that's the career path I want to take when the ball starts bouncing, and I feel like you could possibly give me the best answer on that. Any other tips that I could connect from my basketball world to the finance world would be of service as well. Thanks. This is, this is a great question. There's, there's a lot of routes that you can go. Uh, what I would say is I would not go the big bank route. There are a lot of young upstarts in the industry that go with, I call them the Morgans and the Merrill Lynches of the world. Uh, there, there are many of them out there, many different out there. Uh, most of those are just trying to how those systems typically work is there's kind of this lead group of uh, advisors. They bring on new young advisors, and after two three years, they require to hit a certain number of assets under management. And if they don't get there, then they're basically let go. Uh, but the assets they do bring on, maybe it's only uh, so it's usually about twenty twenty five million dollars. Let's say they only bring on uh, a few million dollars in the first two three years then those assets go to the umbrella company um, and then you have to kind of move on and find your next phase. And nine out of 10, 19 out of 20, 90 to 95% never actually achieve that minimum amount. And 
then they have kind of nowhere to go. They might be licensed, but now what is the question? And so most people kind of burn out in that situation. So I would say don't go down that route. Uh, I would either find a smaller firm that you could get higher up quicker uh, and learn a lot more as opposed to kind of just being the low end lackey. And then try not to try not to get into a business where you're selling commission products that's kind of going by the wayside due to regulation and the fact that consumer is more educated about uh, the commission structure that most a lot of brokers still operate on selling variable annuities and, and mutual funds and things like that. So I would I would I would definitely um, go with the maybe RA route. That's what that's what we are at KP Financial, which means your fiduciaries, etc. Uh, and then lastly, with your basketball connections, that certainly can help you with your network and bringing in assets, bringing in uh, on clients, and you definitely want to leverage that. Uh, Luke, anything to add on that front? No, I think it's a pretty good summary. I would just say that a lot of people tend to go for uh, something that maybe provides them with the biggest compensation, but not the best learning. So I would say early on in your career, try and focus on learning and improving yourself. So that later on in your career, uh, you can you can get ahead. Makes sense. All right, let's go to our second call in a row from 888-99-CHART. Hello, Justin, Luke, or Steve. I'm calling about Amazon, ticker AMZN. I have a position already with a cost of about $133, and I'm looking to buy some more. They've had a small pullback this week, and looks like they have support from August 12th at $144. I am holding it with a price target of about 180, which is their all-time high back in early August. Or do you think it would be wiser for me to hold it even longer as a long-term hold? My name is Bob. I'm 25 from Ohio, and I look forward to hearing your answer on the podcast. Thanks for all that you guys do. Well, we don't need to tell you all what Amazon does. Well, this and this is a, a name that benefited greatly from the pandemic, and then things kind of reversed uh, in the fact that the input cost to what they do, which is sell products and deliver them in two days, uh, that certainly went up dramatically. And they ended up losing money in 2022 after making a record high of $3.24 in 2021. Bounce back in 2023, Luke, of 268 and expect to make 380 this year. Uh, which puts it in a forward-looking multiple somewhere in the 60, oh no, sorry, not 60, uh, about 40 times forward-looking earnings. That's still pretty expensive, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that, that, that is pretty expensive still. I mean, it, it, it is trading below its five-year average, though during the pandemic, like you mentioned, they definitely had some, some tailwinds at their backs. Um, I think overall, the thing that concerns me the most about a lot of these companies is just the regulatory risk. You see that the FTC is coming after Apple and coming after Amazon. So if you're a long-term holder, you got to be aware of that. Yeah, I would have a tight out on Amazon. Uh, I think there's more risk of it rolling over than hitting that one level. Now we're heading to a break. Remind you to check out our new Invest.Classroom Classroom series. Luke and I break down how to prioritize your savings. And you can check out our latest six-minute video of our Invest.Classroom Classroom over on YouTube. Just Click on the episode 14 episode, how to prioritize your savings. Now the phone lines are open waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART.
Invest Talk is always made better when our listeners contribute their questions. So tell your friends and family members they can interact in real time with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein during the Invest Talk live stream program between 4 and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Or they can leave their questions anytime 24 7 in the Invest Talk voice bank. Remember, for live or recorded questions, the number never changes. 888-99-CHART. Our main focus point today is set up by the story that everybody wants to know about, which is what will the key themes be in the market for 2024? Now, everybody knows that in 2023, the market was primarily driven by the tech AI craze. Now, Justin, what do you think is going to be the predominant theme in markets coming into the new year? Well, this is a, a report by Goldman Sachs, and uh, I think it's always interesting to see what what they say. Everybody has prognostications early in the year, and guess what? Everybody's going to be right about some and wrong about others. No, very few people are, are going to be batting a thousand throughout the year when you kind of touch on you know different segments of the market or uh, the color of the, the markets as a whole. Um, now, their first point, which I think is fairly obvious, market came into the year overbought and some consolidation is to be expected in the month of January. I don't think that's a revelation. That's kind of easy to, to understand. And we are in a blackout period as we go into Q4 earnings. So that could create some softness as well. And January is typically the largest demand for uh, U.S. retail investors. So uh, the retail investor remains strong. They had uh, good performance last year with uh, you know tech stocks rallying so much, and that's where they tend to invest. Now, Goldman Sachs' first big, their big uh, call for the year in the bond market is that the Fed is going to cut five times this year, and they see the 10-year being at 1.7% by the end of this year. That's the first thing I'm fading. I do not believe the 10-year is going to 1.7% by the end of the year. I think there's a much better chance that the interest rates are higher by the end of the year from here, uh, where we're at four, uh, than they are to be sub two. I just don't see that happening. No, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think you and I have both touched on this several times over the past couple of weeks, and that's we think that the market's getting a little bit ahead of itself in terms of how many cuts they're going to be. And I think one of the reasons is something we're actually going to talk about uh, on one of our other focus points, uh, which is how supply chains have inf affected inflation and what that might look like going forward. So given the Fed is, is predominantly still worried about inflationary pressures and a resurgence of inflation, I don't see five cuts happening short of some sort of systematic issue that would require that. Yeah, I mean, I think, is there a potential for five? Sure. Uh, but I just don't understand how they get to 1.7 by the end of the year, because what they're saying is five cuts this year and a few more cuts in 2025. Now, already the market's priced in, what, six? Yeah. So if there's five, that's already less than the market is priced in. And then even if the market prices in a couple more in 2025, how much further will the 10-year go down? All the way to 1.7? I just, I just don't buy it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, To be fair, they, they didn't do, say the magnitude of the cuts. <laughs> 
I guess that's true. I guess you could say that if they're cutting by 50 basis points a meeting, yeah, sure, yeah. I guess you get down there. Um, it just doesn't jive with me. 1.7, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, then they do talk about low-quality stocks uh, rallying. Uh, and that, that rally only persisting for a quarter or two. So basically, I think they're saying fade the small caps over the large caps. Fade the small caps over the large caps. Don't get bought into this recent trend where small caps are going to continue to outperform the large caps. Uh, I, th- I would say I, that all depends on where the dollar goes. And, and that's what's so troubling for me is you're, if you're saying that the interest rates are going to drop so dramatically, then why wouldn't small caps outperform? Small caps should outperform because the dollar should be weaker. Their funding costs should be, should be lower and they should be doing better. So the low quality names would rally. So I think they're kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth here. Yes, certainly. And I think you see that a little bit later on in the report when they talk about um, essentially the the theme of reshoring and friendshoring and, and onshoring still being something that is prevalent in the year, but then at the same time, costs are going to continue to go down. So if things are becoming more expensive because they're going away from those emerging market countries where the cost of labor and the cost of production is cheaper and bringing it back onto the U.S. or onto friendly countries or close to the U.S. where it's more expensive, you would expect that the cost of production to go up. So I think there's a lot of places in this report where I don't necessarily agree with the conclusion that they're making. Exactly. I think, I think the, the first step forward that they're, that they're prognosticating about in many instances is correct, but I think how they see that playing out in markets just doesn't really jive. Um, now, they, they do talk uh, about one theme that I agree with, and that is that the narrative is going to start moving from AI adoption in what companies are going to benefit from the deployment of AI, for example, as opposed to moving towards AI uh, improvement. So how is AI improve, or, or how is it actually improving businesses uh, on the user end? Uh, And so I think that's going to be a theme. What sectors beyond just technology are going to benefit uh, from AI? So very interesting report. Once again, uh, I I think, you know, our our view is that inflation is going to remain relatively high uh, or not high, but, you know, higher than historical uh, perspective from a historical perspective. Um, And interest rates are going to stay kind of, I think, in a choppy period. All right, we're going into a break. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. The stock market is constantly changing, and serious investors know that they need to modify their portfolio assets to fit the times. And now, with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on InvestTalk. 888-99-CHART. Hello, Steve, Justin, Luke calling in today primarily to wish Steve a speedy recovery. Very sad to hear about his predicament. Hope he's back with us soon. I know I'm not the only one that misses his old school wisdom, knowledge. He's taught me so much over the last few years of listening to you guys. Just his amicable personality and his humility in investing in all the great lessons 
just one beautiful gem being don't buy companies that don't make money. I, I never heard that before, and it saved me probably tens of thousands of dollars over the last few years. So we miss him, just miss his voice, and I hope he, he recovers soon. Anyway, I know you run a uh, tight and efficient show here, so I'll throw you a stock question as well. Looking at the beat-up agricultural sector here, I'd like your views. I'm looking at FMC Corp, which is ticker FMC, and Cortiva, which is CTVA. They're both down. I think Cortiva's probably in better shape here, but FMC looks like it might be cheaper. Uh, wondering if either one's a buy and uh, if you'd recommend buying either one at this time or if we should wait or if you have a, uh, a good buy point for either or or neither at this point. I'd, I'd like to hear your views. Uh, thanks for all you do for us and I'll listen on the podcast. Well, thank you for the kind words on Steve. We'll definitely pass that along. We miss, him. We miss having him on air as well and, and hopefully – we get him back here soon, sometime later in the year. Uh, but you're looking at FMC and Cortiva. And for everyone else out there, Cortiva is a spinoff of DuPont. DuPont. So uh, you're looking at two of the largest ag names out there. FMC, they manufacture agricultural, industrial, and commercial chemicals, insecticides, herbicides, fun- fungicides, etc., and both of these names down their luck. FMC peaked out around $135, $140 per share back in uh, 2022. Now it's at $61 per share, and that's after rallying from a low of around 50. And Cortiva, that spun off back in looks like 2019, hit a high of 68. Now we're at $47 per share. Uh, both have negative earnings growth recently, but their technicals are improving. Which one looks cheaper to you, Look, Yeah, Luke, look, Luke. <laughs> hey, whatever you want to call me. Uh, t- to me, well, Cortiva from a price to book perspective looks a lot cheaper. Uh, the margins are slightly worse, but that's just because FMC is leveraged a lot more. FMC has a substantial amount of debt relative to its market cap compared to Cortiva. Overall, like you said, I think they're both down on their luck, but the technicals are improving. If you had to make a choice, I think my choice would be Cortiva. I think it's it's cheaper. Its margins are essentially the same on an after-tax basis, and it looks like it's got some better growth prospects uh, going into the next year. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And the technicals, I would say, look a bit better on Cortiva. Both of them are amazing uh, on the technical basis because they are still, I would say, in that longer-term downtrend, but they are both threatening to uh, break out to the upside. And that that oftentimes is uh, where you can get some of the biggest moves. Our, our names that historically have good profitability are down their luck in the near term because of some industry-related uh, trends. Uh, and then those trends kind of re- revert to the mean in a positive direction. You get some, get some upside. So both are interesting. If Cortiva can break above the 100-day moving average, which it hasn't done since the spring of last year, uh, that's that would make it very interesting to me. That's up around $49 per share, and now it's at 47 So I'd be watching for a breakout uh, to potentially jump on Cortiva. Now let's switch over to our perspective for the day, and we're looking at Luke's favorite index, and that is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's your favorite, right, Luke? Terrible math. Make it make sense. 
<laughs> well, the, one of the reasons everyone looks at the Dow uh, is because it's one of the oldest. It started in 1896, May 26th of 1896. And did you know, Luke, there were only 12 original stocks in that particular index. And it was just industrial names that at the time gave a good indicator of what the broad economy was doing. And General Electric is the only one of those 12 left. And it's been removed and reinstated twice since then. So just shows you that even the oldest and most followed index out there has changes, some for good reasons and some for bad reasons like bankruptcies. Um, so uh, it's, it's a very interesting uh, one to follow. And Luke, why don't you give, before I give you the 12 original companies, why don't you give the audience a rundown of why no one should ever look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average for an indicator of anything. Uh, and the only reason people follow it is because it's the biggest number. Yeah, no, that's true. You know, the, the S&P 500, the Russell indices, most indices are market cap weighted indices, meaning that if you are a larger company in terms of your market cap, you have a higher weight. Apple, for example, large, large company, higher weight. The Dow Jones, however, is price weighted which means that the companies with the highest prices are going to have outsized effects on it, regardless of the size of the company, regardless of Which makes zero sense. Of anything else. It makes absolutely zero sense at all whatsoever. Yeah, because if a company wanted to do a split, right, a three-for-one split, two-for-one split, their percentage of the Dow is going to drop simply because the stock split and the valuation of the company changed not one iota. Make it make right? sense. Make it make sense. <laughs> Do you think we should ban the Dow Jones Industrial? Dow hey, Jones. It's, free, it's the free market. If people want to look at that and think it means something, you're you're willing, you're able to do that. <laughs> That's true. Well, back in 1896, there were 12 companies included. One was the American Cotton Oil Company, American Sugar Company, American Tobacco Company, which was uh, by 1907 was broken up by antitrust regulators, Chicago Gas Company. Distilling and Cattle Feeding Company, General Electric, there's that one, Laclede Gas Company, National Lead Company, North American Utility Company, Tennessee Coal and Iron, U.S. Leather Company, and U.S. Rubber Company. Pretty interesting. So, once again, most of those, game, those names are defunct or they were purchased by other companies that are still alive today. By 1916, the number of stocks went up to 20 and again rose to 30 in 1928. And the Dow theory uh, is, is still a thing about what the Dow Jones Industrial Average does and whether uh, that's breaking out, is it confirming a new high in the markets, for example, that's a part of uh, Dow theory. And just like all indices, though, the components are continuously revised, and they try to make it reflect the total industry of the United States. But is there any possible way to do that with just 30 names? Certainly not, but making it price-weighted. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that, that doesn't help, that's for sure. All right, let's go to Tom in Oregon. He wants to talk about sectors. Oh, hi there. Oh, hey, Justin. Hey, Luke. Thanks uh, for having me. Uh, Long-time listener, so I appreciate all you do, and first-time calling in, so I appreciate that, too. Um, I had a question 
Uh, kind of a sector question, and I was just looking at uh, the oil and gas sector and how it's been pulling back recently. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I trimmed a lot of my oil positions in the past year, and I guess that my main question was if this is a good time to get back into those positions. And I guess I was really wanting your perspective on uh, like how generally seems like oil and gas tend to uh, lag behind during like the uh, recession and early phase of the economic cycle. Um, so I, I would think we're kind of in there now, but was open on your perspective on that question. Well, energy demand does tend to be cyclical, but it kind of has its own its own idiosyncrasies because so much about the underlying price of oil and gas has to do with supply. And a lot of that has to do with CapEx spending within the industry. And so that's why you had during COVID, you had so many companies, when price of oil went negative, if you remember, if you remember that, it went negative. Uh, companies pull back dramatically the CapEx spending. And what did that do? That kind of flipped it the other way because, because a year later, the supply growth was not there and the economy was roaring back. And so, you know, a lot of what happens within that space is not just the demand and what if the economy is growing or shrinking, it actually has more to do with supply. You know, is OPEC increasing supply or are they, are they shrinking supply, for example? Um, so it, it's definitely a, a pretty unique industry uh, in that sense. Now, uh, you're starting to see oil prices go up a little bit. Today, you had a bit of a setback because it looks like, as Luke said at the top of the show, there's some uh, resolution of what's happening in the Red Sea. But that's not the only risk to oil prices. And as uh, geopolitical concerns continue to build, uh, that certainly could spark another uh, rally in oil on the supply side. Because on the demand side, demand growth is still there, uh, mainly because emerging markets continue to pick up uh, the use of oil and gas. And the main reason we live a modern lifestyle is because of our ability to harness fossil fuels and the energy that 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 produces. Uh, Whether we like it or not, that's the true case. And those emerging markets are increasingly picking up uh, habits that require uh, energy and and thus fossil fuels. So uh, I think longer term energy is still a pretty good place to be. And you want to be probably more adding uh, on pullbacks like this than, than, than selling. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Very, very insightful as always. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for the call. Now, Luke, let's uh, switch over to something that uh, has a corollary to what we just talked about, and that is the supply chain. And supply chain pressures based on the New York Fed's supply chain index uh, looks like have eased. Uh, to negative 0.15 in December after being at 0.13 in positive territory in in November. And the big question is, how is this going to feed into inflation? You know, we've had a number of months in a row now, besides November, where this was in neg- negative territory, which means supply chains are healing, right? Yeah, that's what it means. But it also means that in a way, you were able to count on this exogenous exogenous to the Fed's activity variable to bring down uh, month-over-month inflation. So as that peaks 
away from the, uh, rather moves away from from the negative territory and into the to the flat or slightly positive territory. Uh, that means that you don't have this artificial drag on what has been uh, lower inflationary pressures, right? So that's going to make the Fed's the Fed's job moving forward a little bit more complicated because they can't rely on things outside themselves as much to control uh, and and bring down what has happened with inflation. Yeah, so this hit a peak in December of 2021 at 4.33. So it's been in negative territory now for most of 2023. And that means that supply chains are healing a a bit. Now, it's not dramatic, but it's kind of consistent. And even the Fed and uh, in the Fed minutes, they highlighted this and they said, quote, Several participants assessed that healing in the supply chains and labor supply was largely complete, and therefore that continued progress in reducing inflation may need to come mainly from further softening in product and labor demand with restrictive monetary policy continued to play a central role. So they basically are saying is, we've had that round trip. Supply chains are pretty much back to normal. We're not going to get that nice tailwind or headwind, however you want to call it, that is helping inflation uh, come back down. And therefore, there needs to be other factors. Um, Now, I do think this is a bit overblown, though, Luke, because this is supply chains mainly have to do with products. And as we've talked about many times in the show, manufacturing and physical goods is just not a huge part of the economy. You know, roughly quarter to a third of the economy are, are, are physical goods. Uh, and the vast majority is on the services side. So while supply chains are healing, it's not going to be the main factor that brings down inflation. It's going to be labor because when you, the main input to labor, or sorry, the main input to services is labor. And therefore you need labor uh, labor costs to continue to, to ebb. So I think this is interesting. There are certainly risks like what's happening uh, in the Middle East. But uh, certainly, as Goldman Sachs was talking about, that deglobalization or regionalization of supply chains, uh, that's certainly going to keep the inflation uh, side, uh, inflation on the manufacturing side, uh, relatively uh, elevated. Uh, So I don't know, do you think there'll be some more geopolitical risks that disrupt the supply chain uh, of the world? If I were a betting man, I would always bet on the world being less stable than we think it's going to be. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. I think that especially in election year, be, especially in election year. But because of of where these where a lot of these goods are moving in 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 parts of the world that they're are constantly in flux geopolitically, uh, certainly the it's one of the reasons why a lot of companies are reshoring and onshoring and friendshoring. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that's probably going to be the case going forward as well. Well, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and we have one goal here each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So if you're going to call, you want to do that right now at 888 chart This is Invest Talk. Is your portfolio balanced? Is it optimized? Is it delivering the types of gains you want and need to achieve financial freedom? Well, turn up the volume because there are many questions that deserve unbiased answers. 
And Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your calls live. 888-99-CHART. Now, before we talk about earnings, we're going to go to Richard in Santa Clarita, who has an ETF question for us. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I'm a long-time listener. I, too, want to uh, send my best to Steve. Sorry to hear what he's going through, but I wish him a speedy recovery and hope he returns soon. He's a great resource. Yes, he is. Uh, um, my question uh, is on an ETF, and it is the Franklin FTSE India ETF, symbol F-L-I-N. I've heard Justin often, well, I don't often put, talk about uh, how Mexico is a you know a good place to uh, invest in terms of long term uh, in the emerging markets and so forth. I was wondering about also this one, India, and how India, this particular ETF, would it be a good investment, at least in the long term, uh, looking ahead at emerging markets? Well, first, I like I like your thoughts here. Uh, I think India is one of those markets over the next couple of years that could do really well as EMX China has the potential to do well, uh, you know, going forward. Now, looking at this ETF, it is run by Franklin Templeton, so a very large company. And the first thing that really surprises me, Justin, is its expense ratio is only 19 basis points, which for an emerging market fund is incredibly cheap. You're, you're usually going to see something in the realm of 50, 60, maybe even 70 basis points when you're trying to get that exposure. And overall, it looks looks pretty broadly diversified. I think I'm not really seeing any issues here from my perspective. What about you, Justin? Yeah, I don't see any issues. And I think the main reason it can have an expense ratio that low is simply it's just following an index, right? There's no active nature to this. And so I, I, I think that's, that's fine. And as you said, India uh, of the emerging markets X China, this is the place that probably has the most potential. You see, you see, Apple moving a lot of manufacturing uh, to India, you know, their biggest issue is going to be infrastructure and being able to have the, that, that's what China has in spades, which is they built great infrastructure for manufacturing and transportation. And India, it's getting there, but it's getting there probably a bit too slow. The, the main thing they have uh, at their, at their the wind at their back is because of demographics. They have a ton of young people and, you know, that, that, that labor capital is, is very important to uh, the manufacturing sector. So uh, I do think India is a good place to gain exposure to emerging markets if you're trying to do that. Uh, and this is a good ETF for that. Thanks for the call. Now, before we close this show today, I think one thing that needs to be talked about, given where we are in the uh, calendar, is earnings season. And, you know, Justin, I would say that this is the put up or shut up area of the market, where over the past couple months you had a, a big run up, a big rally in equity prices. And now it's time to figure out if corporate earnings match what the market th thought they would be. Yeah, and analysts are expecting corporate earnings in the fourth quarter to be up about. 1.3% year over year. And that would put total profits for the full year up a little less than 1% uh, for, for Wall Street. And, you know, I, I, this is, I think, a fine number. You know, I think the market was looking for just a plateau. And if you look based on expectations for 2024, and that's really what the market will focus on, is less about Oh, what was what were fourth quarter earnings? It's going to be what are their full year 2024 earnings projections? And you've already had 
a little bit of uh, a little bit of taste recently from Nike and FedEx. They both had actually disappointing earnings. You also had Walgreens Boots Alliance. They cut their dividends. Their dividend. Uh, Nike said they're seeing a cautious consumer out there. And so the big question is what will happen? How will that feed into the heavyweights in the market? With the MAG-7 having such a great year in 2023, will their earnings meet expectations or will they disappoint? I think that will be a large driver of where the market goes in the first quarter. And so for 2024 in total, earnings are expected to be up 12%. But the odds are very low. It's going to meet that over time naturally those earnings projections are going to come down but uh so to me i actually and i think the market kind of knows that and so it actually to me leaves a low bar for the market to get over for this upcoming year but um yeah earnings season's coming up so be on the lookout for that and how the market reacts will be the most important aspect well that about does it Wrap up, wrapping up our first Monday show of 2024. I'm Justin Klein here with Luke Guerrero, and we thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, It's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial.